Well, I hope you were blessed last week as uh, my friend Drew DiNardo came and preached God's Word in James 1. I was. I was thankful that he came because it allowed me to be away. I was also thankful to listen to the message in James 1. Just encouraged, really thankful for him that he came and preached. It was funny. Drew said, so uh, what do you want me to wear? Should I wear my robe? <laughs> and I said, no, you shouldn't wear your robe. We're friends, even though you're a Presbyterian, but you can leave your robe at home. So... When I preach at his church, I suppose he'll ask me to wear the robe, and I will. Anyway, and you'll all laugh and take pictures. (laughs) If the commitment is there to the gospel and clarity with his word, then that's what's first and foremost. And it's so good that we have fellowship with believers in other places, even with some differences. I'm just thankful for the gospel that does unite us where we have union in the gospel. Molly and I had the privilege of being together last week. Usually when I travel, we're not together, so I was glad that we were able to be together in Nashville, and uh, I was speaking at a dear, dear friend of mine's 10-year anniversary. Um, He's become a friend of some of yours, Byron Yon, and we just had a great time together, really thankful. Uh, Thank, I want to thank you for being understanding, because I'm gone sometimes, and sometimes more than I want to be, but it was just good to go fellowship with believers there, yet at the same time I come home. And uh, I just love Omaha Bible Church. This is church family. And uh, even this morning when we were singing, both services, I just thought, I love being home. These are the people I know. Um, and it's, it's different in that sense. I'm grateful. I didn't get enough of Nashville. Um, I've actually been to Nashville twice in the last five days. Uh, we got home and then two of the kids and I got in the car and drove there 14 hours straight through. Uh, it was a cheap hotel. We just slept in the parking lot. Um, <laughs> in the car. Anyway, uh, we went for athletic reasons and uh, just good to be back and back for a while. So I feel like I've been in Nashville so much. If I had cowboy boots, I'd wear them. But praise God, I don't own any. Um, all right, now I've gotten myself in trouble. Um, we are going to study God's Word today. It's not just me talking about myself, I promise. Um, but I do want to pray as we open God's Word together. Father, thank you for friends in the gospel uh, from other places. Um, Thank you for what you're doing around this country as you raise up men and women uh, and give them a burden that is Holy Spirit driven to be clear and fearless and loving when it comes to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for those friendships that we do have. Thank you that they're not just in this country. Thank you that they actually span the globe, that there are men and women who love the Lord Jesus Christ and want to be clear about his great gospel message. And Lord, I'm so thankful that we as a church are able to be a part of that. Uh, What a privilege it is, even as we um, go through the difficulties of life as individuals and as families, it's great to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Uh, We're glad that you are using people like us to point to the greatness of your son, Jesus. And we would ask that you would continue to do that. We would ask that you would even help us to see him for his greatness, even in an extraordinary way today as we study your word together, that you would do things that are so significant and so great that there's no way we could take credit for them, That, that the nations would know, that many people would know that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. And you would remind us of that today as it would affect our relationships with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Romans 15 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you'll want to go ahead and turn to Romans 15. We're going to look at verse 7 down to, I think, verse 13. 
And uh, I've entitled the message, Irreconcilable Differences Reconciled. Irreconcilable differences reconciled. We're going to be talking about conflict in the church among believers and how those don't have to be. And that'll be our focus this morning. Now, what happens, my question for you is, what happens when there is that relationship tension in the church, when there is real conflict? What is it that we are to do? In other words, where do we turn for a solution when you have a conflict with another man or another woman in the body of Christ, in this local church, where do you turn? What do you do? What's the course of action? Well, some find the solution in just being bitter. And many have tried this solution, and it's not a solution. But many say, well, I have a way to deal with conflict. I'll just be a bitter person. Others have found a different church or sought to find a different church where everyone is nice. By the way, if you find a church where everyone is nice, please tell me. Uh, I haven't created a resume for 15 years, but I'd be willing to do that. (laughs) Because the fact of the matter is, as saved as we might be, we're all sinners, right? Well, others say, well, I've had this conflict with this other person or this other family or this leader, and so they do what is so-called home church. Some of you have done that in trying to deal with conflicts. You just do home church. And you found that that's not a good solution. As a matter of fact, it's actually a contradiction in terms, literally, because church means assembly. And you can't assemble when you're not assembled uh, with other believers. And so that's not the solution. Um, And so we don't want to turn to home church as a way of dealing with our conflicts with other people. Uh, You might have tried consulting an expert in conflict resolution as the way to deal with problems. Or maybe in desperation you say, the church is just messed up, it's filled with conflict, that's how it's going to be, and there is no way of dealing with it. I've just got to deal with it until heaven by doing nothing. I suppose the list could go on and on and on. The one thing missing from the list is like the elephant in the room for Christians. The one thing that the book does explicitly say as far as our way of dealing with problems, not if they happen, but when they happen, because we do have problems, we're going to have problems, you're going to have problems if you're engaged at all. The one solution that is explicitly spelled out in the book hasn't been mentioned. We deal with our conflicts and our tensions among ourselves. How? Some of you might be saying, God, good job. Some of you might be saying, Jesus, good job. You'll always be right. (laughs) Holy Spirit, prayer, great job. How about where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all work together? How about that solution that's the elephant in the room because we forget it so easily, but it's actually where we're supposed to turn for our problem solving, and that is none other than the gospel. The way to reconcile irreconcilable differences is to remember the gospel, to turn to the gospel, to remember that the gospel is the great reconciling work of God between sinners and God himself. And if we've been reconciled to God, then we can get along with, quite frankly, anybody because we're so overwhelmed with joy. So this morning we're going to talk about the gospel as it would relate to our getting along with each other. Now, I realize there are objections, and you might even be entertaining them in your mind. You might be thinking, 
the gospel is the solution to me getting along with other people, pastor, I'm already a Christian. I already know what the gospel is, and I've already believed the gospel. I've already checked that box off. I don't need the gospel. I'm a Christian. What I need is something practical beyond the gospel. And what I would like to show you today in Romans 15 is that you're believing one of Satan's best-kept secrets. You're somehow believing that Christians don't need the gospel and that you move on and beyond the gospel. It's no wonder we have so many interpersonal relationship problems. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 1. I know I told you to turn to Romans 15. I'm sorry. You might find a church where the pastor always says the right thing. Um, But I am saying I'm sorry. told you to go to the wrong place. Please don't leave. Uh, All joking aside, Satan wants you to think that you don't need the gospel. What we need to do is see what the Bible says, and it says clearly that Christians need the gospel. And then we're going to go back to Romans 15 and see how Christians use the gospel, if you will, or benefit from the gospel to get along with each other. Is it hot in here? This means yes. Anybody who has that spiritual gift of changing the thermostat and can make it right, um, that'd be great. If not, that's fine. I dressed for winter, so I'm ready. Um, look with me, if you would, at verse 15 of chapter 1. In 15, at chapter 1, verse 15 says, So I am eager, Paul says, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And at first glance, you think, yeah, those unbelievers, man, they needed to hear the gospel. But the fact of the matter is he's not talking to unbelievers because if you keep reading down to verse 7, or excuse me, back up to verse 7, who's he addressing when he says that? Well, verse 7 tells us who he's addressing. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. He's addressing Christians. I long to come to you, saints who are loved by God. I long to come to you. I want to come to you so I can give you practical principles because you've already checked the box marked gospel. No, I want to come to you so I can preach the gospel to you. And you say, why do they need the gospel? They've already been converted. They're already called saints, which means holy ones. Maybe for lots of different reasons, but one reason would be to deal with their conflict issues. It's kind of interesting. Many, maybe even most, Bible commentators that talk about why Paul wrote Romans, because there's not an explicit purpose statement that's really refined. The common agreement is, at least one of the reasons, if not the big reason, why Paul writes Romans, is to deal with interpersonal problems. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of almost hard for me to swallow. It's almost hard for me to... I I actually think it's true, but it's almost hard for me to swallow because you think, Romans isn't about interpersonal relationships. Romans is about what? Romans is about the gospel. I mean, there isn't a more gospel-esque book in the whole Bible. It's absolutely amazing what you learn about the gospel in Romans. I mean, it's just staggering to the mind what we learn about the gospel. But what was the catalyst? What led him to write, under the inspiration of the Spirit, all of this great, deep, profound gospel truth? 
at least one reason. Let's put it that way. At least one thing that led him to do it is Christians weren't getting along. And as we're going to see in Romans 15 in a little, little while, he makes a direct connection between understanding the gospel and getting along. By the way, don't take my word for it. Back, you're still in chapter 1? Chapter 1, verse 14, 15, 16. We already looked at 15, but maybe go back up to 14. You'll get an idea why commentators think this and why it's, it's reasonable. It makes sense. It says in verse 14, I am under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to foolish, all different kinds of people I want to preach the gospel to. Then 15, which we just read. Then 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He is talking about Jew-Gentile issues. It's the same gospel that saves Jews, same gospel that saves Gentiles. It's for all different kinds of people. There is definitely a Jew-Gentile kind of conflict going on in Romans, and maybe one of the reasons he writes is to solve that problem. Go back to chapter 15, if you would. Let's see how it works. As you're turning there, I'll tell you about kind of a funny story. I guess it's not really funny, but one Saturday night, a pastor friend called me, um, It's a little weird to get a call on a Saturday night when you're a pastor because you're really trying to hone in on what you're doing the next day and you're trying to have a one-track mind and uh, I would be prone to not answering the phone. But when I see that a pastor's calling me on Saturday night, I'm thinking, I better pick it up. So I answered. Hey, what's going on? He said, you know, I'm preaching Romans 115 tomorrow. And I have a problem. I said, okay. Why would Paul want to preach the gospel to Christians? And I thought, you do have a problem. <laughs> a philosophy of ministry problem. <laughs> I said, think about it. Why would he need to preach the gospel to Christians? Just, just be literal about the question. He said, because they need to hear the gospel. I'm like, yeah. And why would they need to hear the gospel? Well, in part because they need to be reminded about how great God's salvation is. And if you understand how great God's salvation is, quite frankly, it changes your perspective on everything. Because Christians who are not misled by the devil, I like to say, don't ever think they move beyond the gospel. Because it always comes back to the gospel. These are Christians he's writing to. And he says to them, he wants to come to them to preach the gospel to them, to deal with their problems. The solution is not a conflict resolution expert. It's not bitterness. The solution to their conflict problem is none other than the gospel. And I would submit to you that the solution to our conflict problems that we have and are going to have till the Lord comes back is to remember the gospel. I've been saying gospel a lot. I should probably say what that means. The good news that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law perfectly by obeying the law, the law that you break and that I break, he kept perfectly. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? But to fulfill it. That Jesus Christ died a sinner's death, a substitutionary death, where he bore the wrath of his father 
on behalf of everyone who would ever believe that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead as the victor over the grave so that we would have life and so that we wouldn't be enslaved to sin. That He has ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. This is good news for sinners. This is gospel news. When we have conflicts, notice, when the most important thing we could ever possibly do is to remember what we so easily take for granted and forget. The good news that God, through Jesus, reconciles sinners even though they don't deserve it. Because when people wrong you, they don't deserve to be forgiven. But if you understand the gospel, you'll forgive them anyway. That's the end of the sermon. We didn't even look at the passage. It's not the end of the sermon. <laughs> now that we've got that out of the way, let's see if it's really biblical. <laughs> Here we go. Look at verse 7. Seven's the one you want to put a star next to. It's the main point. It's the main command. It's really the thrust of everything. We'll start this and we'll end this with verse 7. 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another. There's the command, present tense. So this is your disposition. This is what you keep on doing as brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome or receive, keep receiving, keep welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another is central. Just keep that uh, ringing in your mind. Welcome one another. Receive one another. Not just tolerate one another, but it's actually positive. You're welcoming. You're receiving. Fellow sinners who you don't necessarily like naturally, welcome them. Receive them. Well, we don't necessarily see eye to eye on everything. We agree on the gospel, but we have some, uh, some issues. Keep receiving them. Keep welcoming them. And he tells us why. As Christ has welcomed you. Or at least that tells us how. As Christ has welcomed you. Think about that. How has Christ welcomed you? This is gospel. This is where I got gospel from. That's a little summary statement of the gospel. As Christ has welcomed you, how has Christ welcomed you if you're a Christian? He's welcomed you unconditionally, not based upon something you did, then it wouldn't be grace. He's welcomed you fully and completely and entirely based upon everything He did, not based upon anything you do. This is awesome. This is so simple and so straightforward, it kind of makes me nervous and scared because we can never say, God, I didn't understand it. I didn't forgive. I didn't forget. Because they didn't deserve it. You're right, they don't deserve it. But you don't deserve to be welcomed by Christ. And yet He welcomed you based upon what He deserved. Isn't it good? It's good and scary at the same time. It's like coffee. Tastes good and horrible all at the same time. What's the cartoon where they do that? Open season? Go home and watch that. You'll learn theology. Anyway. <laughs> this is great because it's so simple. Welcome one another as Christ welcomes you. But it's so simple and makes so much sense. It makes me nervous because you think, man, I'm really accountable here. Now, just so we understand it better, I pose the question, how has he welcomed you? 
let's pretend like we're just mainstream pop evangelicals who actually haven't studied Romans 1 to 5, let's say. And we hear this. Receive one another as, as Christ has received you. How has Christ received you? Oh, he's received me because I deserve to be received. Because I'm a special person. Because I'm nice, deserving. And you know what was happening? I was busy seeking. And I was busy doing all the right things. And you know what? I found Jesus. And he received me. That's how a lot of people think. I'm going to help you not think that way if you're thinking that way right now. But if you think that way, it's no wonder you have relationship problems in the church. (laughs) Because if you're thinking like that, you think Christ received you because you were so receivable. Because you were such a good person and so wonderful and so beautiful that he thought, well, I should really receive them. I should accept them and save them because they deserve it. Now, as you interrelate to people and and you interact with people, you're only going to welcome them when they deserve it. And we're going to have one fat mess on our hands in the church. You know better. You know better. You know that he didn't receive you because you were so, just so doggone beautiful. Right? You know. Look, let's go back to Romans at the beginning and see how did he receive us? He received us By grace, Romans 5, Romans 3, He received us when we shouldn't have been received. He welcomed us. He reconciled us to Himself based upon His grace that was unearned, unmerited, undeserved, and He lavished His grace on us anyway. If you think in those terms, oh, receive others as Christ received you when you didn't deserve it, we can all get along. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says that we were justified, declared righteous by His grace. That's undeserved as a gift. Repeating the notion of grace, undeserved through the redemption, not I redeem myself, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He he earned it on your behalf. We know that this is how he received us, based upon everything he did, based upon nothing we do. We know that, because we know the gospel. Then we go to chapter 5, and we see the same kind of thing. In Romans chapter 5, let's just pick verse 6. Verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, I like NASB translation, helpless, that's how weak we were. We were so weak, we were helpless. We were incapable, incompetent. At the right time, Christ died for the significant, wonderful Beautiful seekers. Please say no. What does he say? He he died for the who? He died for the ungodly. Oh, that's how he received us. He received us when we didn't deserve it because we were ungodly. That's how he received us. Then chapter 5, verse 10. Verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies... Oh, that's how he received us. We were reconciled. That's a good synonym for received. We were reconciled to God. There was a conflict, but there isn't any more. How? By the death of His Son. Much more. See, that's His action, not your action. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Do you see? 
Do you see how clear this is? Do you see how good this is? Receive one another. He's talking to Christians. As Christ received you. If you understand this, we'll be a church that can do ministry more than we're busy spending time putting out personal conflicts. Or as we put out personal conflicts, we're going to be able to keep pointing to the cross and keep pointing to the gospel. Receive one another as He received you. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we might say. And we don't want to miss that last part of that key verse in verse 7 where he says, for the glory of God. Now we're talking motivation. Why would I want to be so motivated to do this? Why is this such a big deal in Romans 15, 7? For the glory of God. We talked about this recently. Romans 1, we learned that we were created to glorify God, but we don't glorify God. We glorify self because of sin. We live for self because of sin. But because of redemption in Christ and, and, and He saves us, now we're restored to do what we were created to do to begin with. And now we do have the ability to glorify God, uh, to glorify God, to reflect Him, something of His character, because we're image bearers. But something even more significant, now that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and now we're called to get along with each other in light of that redemption that we've each received. And he says, glorify God by doing this. Don't check out, track with me through this. When you and I have a conflict and someone, either you or me or some outsider says, remember the gospel. Receive each other as Christ received you. And we do. And even though I've offended you and did the wrong thing, I've sinned against you, let's say. And I deserve to have you be mean to me. And you're not, and you receive me anyway in light of the fact that Christ has received you when you weren't worthy. What is going on there in that interchange, in that dynamic? You're acting Christ-like. And... As you act Christ-like, you reflect something of who Christ is and what He's done, right? Because you're acting Christ-like. That's a reflection, and that's what it means to glorify God. So when others watch and they say, Man, Pat is a big sinner, and he didn't deserve to be forgiven. I know the inside scoop. (laughs) And he was forgiven anyway, and there was reconciliation, and there was welcoming. Man gospel. The gospel is powerful. The gospel is amazing. That is amazing. What you're doing then is you're looking to God and His greatness about grace and the gospel. You see how it works? Does this make sense? Or am I just having fun by myself? (laughs) This means yes. (laughs) It's awesome stuff. If we remember the gospel, we can get along. That's the takeaway. To the degree that we don't remember the gospel, we're not going to get along. That's all. So I need you to keep reminding me, and I need to keep reminding you, and we need to remind each other how all of this works. Just a a quick two footnotes before we move on. He's not saying we should get along with everybody, period. 
He's talking to fellow Christians who agree on the gospel. So please don't hijack this and run with it and assume that somehow this means it doesn't matter if people believe the biblical gospel or not, we're supposed to get along with each other anyway. In fact, in chapter 16, we're going to see it. In chapter 16, verse 17, he's actually going to warn Christians not to get along with those who say they're Christians and who reject the gospel. (laughs) We'll get there. Promise. This is brothers and sisters. We are in agreement on what Romans 1 to 5, 1 to 14 is laid out. We understand it. We get along. The other footnote is the first word was the word therefore. And I probably shouldn't have skipped it, but I'll come back to it now. Just remember, this is linked back to chapter 14. Weaker brother, stronger brother. He's just fleshing it out and taking it to one more level and bringing his argument to conclusion. Remember in chapter 14, the the weaker brother in the church oftentimes is going to be a Jewish brother, oftentimes not always. They come into the church having food laws, holidays, holy days, things they need to keep, whether they're Jew or Gentile. And they come in and they understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And quite frankly, as he spells out in chapter 14, the holy days are irrelevant because Christ fulfilled the law, even the legitimate holy days. Uh, The food laws are irrelevant because Christ fulfilled the law, even the legitimate food laws. And the extra ones, well, obviously those aren't Important because those were added to begin with. That's going to be the weaker brother who's coming in saying, I just am not comfortable eating certain things on certain days. And then the stronger one is going to come in and say, you know what, I get the gospel just like you get the gospel, but I've got a clean slate. I can eat anything and everything whenever. And a day is a day is a day is a day. That's what we've learned in chapter 14. Now we're in chapter 15, and he's saying, whether you're weak or whether you're strong, if you're saved by the blood of the Lamb, and you understand how salvation works, you can get along with the people on the other side of the debate. That's all. So we need to keep that in mind. We doing okay so far? All right. He's going to say something else about the glory of God. As we approach verses 8 to 13, we're going to be able to do this pretty quickly, but as we approach verse 8, I just want to let you know that he's going to talk more about the glory of God, and this might help as we read it in just a moment. And and he's he's going to highlight the fact that as we're struggling getting along maybe with Jew and Gentile, he's going to highlight the fact that God's eternal purposes in saving a lost humanity has included both Jew and Gentile. From the very beginning when God came up with a plan to redeem and to make a people for his own name, from the beginning he had a plan to include Jew and Gentile. And you say, that's not very relevant to me right now. Well, it is relevant in his argument here because he wants to make the point that, you know what, if he includes all different kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, some are weak, some are strong, This would make sense for us to get along with each other because according to his divine plan before the the ages began, he was planning to have all different kinds of people who were going to end up being strong and weak. And so when we get along with each other, you know what's happening? Our actions are reflecting God's eternal plan. I said about three different ways and hopefully I was finally clear by the end. 
He's going to show us. God is designed to have Jew and Gentile together as his people. If that's the case, that impacts us. We're going to work really hard at getting along with each other no matter what kind of people we are because that fits God's eternal design. I think that's all he's getting at here, but he does it in a profound way. Look at verse 8 with me. Verse 8, for I tell you, with authority, chapter 1, verse 1, he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Those would be referring to what people? The circumcised are the Jewish people to show God's truthfulness. Christ is going to be a servant. The Messiah is going to be a servant to the Jewish people, to the circumcised, to show that God is not a liar, that he is the truth-telling God. When he makes promises to the Jewish people to provide a Messiah, guess what? He's going to do it, and he's going to show that he's a true God. He's not like one of the idols we make in our own image, according to our own likeness, man. When this God makes a promise, he keeps it. That's why Jewish people are saved, and the Jewish people are going to say, yeah, you don't forget that. So he's appealing to them. He knows they know that he's made promises to them. But then he gives a twofold reason. Verse 8 goes on to say, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. That's right. He made promises to the patriarchs, patriarchs like Abraham. Don't get lost on this part, but it's going to help you to see how your Bible fits together. He made promises to the patriarchs like Abraham that he would make him a great nation. And he would have a great, 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 great line. You know what? God needs to save if he's really true and a true truth-telling God because he made a covenant with Abraham to save many, to make him great. And so he's saying, look, this this is how it's got to be. Jews are going to be saved and they're going to have a Messiah in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Fulfillment's going to be in Jesus. We learned about this in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 16. So he's just making it clear that God is going to keep his word. That's why there are Jewish people who are saved. 4.13. For the promise, he's using the same language he uses in chapter 15, verse 8. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring. That's even referencing back to Genesis. That he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Then chapter 4, verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise, here we are again, sounds like chapter 15, may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. And I'm going to stop short there from reading the whole thing for now. He's just showing us how all of this is biblical and it's all part of God's plan and purpose, that Jew and Gentile would be saved. Now, the Jews are going to say, of course it's true for us. But maybe they're going to look down on these Gentiles. And so the argument continues in chapter 15, verse 9. Look there. And, so it's not just to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, that God would make Israel great, even though they were weak, even though they were undeserving. He did it through Messiah. And, verse 9 says, in order that, this is going to rock the Jewish mind, the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Gentile salvation has been part of the plan. If Jewish salvation and Gentile salvation has been part of God's eternal plan, guess what? Jews and Gentiles should get along in the church. 
You're glorifying God when you get along in the church with Jews and Gentiles because you're just reflecting what God's purposes were to begin with. And I realize some of you are thinking, well, we don't have a lot of Jews here, so this is kind of irrelevant. I'll grant you that. But we're at least figuring out how the Bible fits together and how the argument works, and we'll eventually get to some application that might be legitimate for us in the here and now. But I want you to see what he's doing. Plan for Israel. Plan for Gentiles. It would make sense that Israelites and Gentiles would get along in the church because when they do that, they glorify God because that was his plan to begin with. That's what he's doing. Why don't you go ahead and turn back to a couple of Old Testament passages to see this. You might want to write them in your margin. Genesis 17, Genesis 22. It's kind of interesting how he's using this profound theology. If you want to be fancy and theological, he's using this, this deep, rich, complicated soteriology, doctrine of salvation. And he's using it to make a point about getting along with each other. When we say, let's just have practical and forget theology, we end up chopping ourselves off from the very source of the practical. Genesis chapter 17, this is just, this is just clarifying chapter 15 of verse 9 of Romans. Genesis 17, 5, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Why? For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. Gentile inclusion. Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18. We're going to say something similar. Genesis 22, verse 17. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as, that, and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Check out verse 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Gentile inclusion. This is massive. This is huge. This is something Jewish people sometimes tend to conveniently forget. Jews and Gentiles. Listen to this quote. So Paul is reminding the believers that God is glorified among them, through them, and in them when they get along given that it showcases, I like that word, the fulfillment of the design of His covenant promises. You ask someone who's a mature Christian, what's your goal in life? What do you want to do? Just speak in general terms. What would you like to do? What are they going to say? I want to glorify God with my life. Well, how about in the church? Would you like to glorify God in the church? Absolutely. I want to glorify God in the church. In your relationships, you want to glorify... I, I, want, I know that the chief end of man is to glorify God. I know, I know this. Then reflect God's redemptive purposes, which include Jew and Gentile, by getting along with the other side. And you'll be glorifying God reflecting him and his infinite wisdom. Well, I think we can understand it in the first century and what was going on with the Roman church. But we're not there. We're not them. I think we might even understand this a little bit if we were to surmise and think about what it's like in Israel now, modern Israel. What's it like in a church where there are Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews? 
I'm sure it's complicated. <laughs> I'm sure it's really complicated. The Jews come in knowing the Bible, sometimes for memory, the whole thing. And they're the people of God with the promises made to them. And they come in knowing all this stuff. Having kept food laws, having, having kept day laws, holiday laws. And then there are Gentiles. Well, how about Gentiles like the Muslims that they're in conflict with? They would be Gentiles. Jew gets converted, sees Jesus as Messiah, as Messiah. The Muslim gets converted, sees Jesus as the God-man. We've got to be in the same church together. This is reality. This is reality. It really happens. And many times, many times, who are the weak Christians? They're the Jews who know the Bible. Because they're having a hard time letting go of those laws. That would be pretty tough to swallow if you were a Jew. And here come these people who don't even know what the Bible says. All of these freedoms. Tough to get along. So what does he do? Keep on receiving. Keep on receiving as Christ received you. Take it back to the cross. And it'll solve a world of problems. And do this because you know, if you look at your Bible close enough, you are then glorifying God because from the very beginning, God has had a plan that would include both Jews and Gentiles. It's cool the way it all works. It's just hard to do. It's hard to be practical. With great caution, maybe we can take two steps back and principalize this a little bit here, even though I'm cautious and unsure about it. I don't know anyone who's here today who's Jewish. I'm told that I have Jewish background, but it's not an issue because it would be a secular kind of Judaism. This is not a real problem that we have. So I want to be really careful about principalizing. But maybe take a shot at principalizing. Some of you, the Jews were the religious conservatives coming, which side am I on? The right? <laughs> Believe the Bible is true? Maybe, it's a stretch, but maybe these are the ones that have gone to Awana their whole life. And you know all the Bible verses? And you know how it all works? And you've been the conservative of the conservatives? And you understand how fundamentalism works? And there are people who are totally pagan and they get converted and you get converted and now you're together and it's really hard because in some ways you're the weaker brother or the weaker sister and you don't feel all those freedoms? It's complicated. That's not exactly what Paul's talking about but by way of principle, if I may, the solution is Christ. To the degree that you and I can keep remembering how we were saved, unconditionally, fully, completely, we can get along with each other. Whether you're on the right side 
or on the left side, if we have Christ in common, we can get along. And we can get along so we can do great ministry together and not just be paralyzed by complications. Christ is the great equalizer. The gospel is the great equalizer. Now what he does is, did I say we were going to do verse 8 fast? (laughs) We'll do 9, 10, and 11, and 12, and 13 fast. He gives a bunch of proof texts. What's the authority in all of this? What's the ultimate authority? I've given you some proof texts, but here are the inspired proof texts uh, in the context. Let's go ahead and look at them. Verse 9, quoting David from Psalm 1849. David's a big hitter. Therefore, verse 9, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. There's Jew and Gentile right there under our very noses. This is nothing new. Verse 10, and again it is said, now quoting Deuteronomy 32, 43, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, referring to the Jews. Then verse 11, quoting Psalm 117, verse 1, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, quoting Isaiah 11:10, the root of Jesse, that's a messianic title from Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, Jeremiah 33, verse 15. Then the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. Messiah will rule the Gentiles. And that's not so scandalous or outrageous, but then keep reading. In him will the Gentiles hope. He's the great savior of the world is the idea. Jew and Gentile, practical implication, we should get along because it's biblical. It matches, it mimics, it mirrors God's eternal purpose. Interestingly enough, even if you go to Jerusalem today and you take a tour and walk around the temple, some of you just did it, they even have some modern signs printed up. Modern signs up that quote, the Isaiah text, I think it's 56 in the 50s, but it's similar to this Isaiah text. That this is a house of prayer for the nations. Interesting. It's very ironic because it's not a house of prayer for the nations functionally. It's just interesting that that sign is up there. Remember, Jesus references that passage, I think it's in Mark chapter 7, where he dumps the tables over on one of two occasions. It's a house of prayer for the nations. Because Jesus, Messiah, is not only the Savior of the Jews, he's the Savior of the, I'll use a different synonym that I just used, Savior of the world, Jew and Gentile. The irony of the sign being up now is it's been fulfilled in Jesus and they ought not be there to begin with, but that's a whole other story. But it's rather interesting. Then we wrap it all up. Let's wrap it all up with verse 13. He offers a hopeful prayer to God, the God of hope. I'll give you a little commentary along the way so we can understand it maybe a little better for your benefit, hopefully. Verse 13, here's how it ends. May the God of hope... I almost can't help myself just to pause there for a second. The God of hope. The God that gives you hope. That's true, but he, 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 by definition, it's so sure. It's so confident. The future is so secure that you have hope. That's biblical 
hope, certainty about the future. But he's here, I love it, called the God of hope. Why? Because he's not an idol made with human hands. He's trustworthy. He was called truthful already. May the God of hope, the God you can truly count on for everything, fill you. Notice the, 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 the encompassing term, the full. Fill you with all, another all-encompassing term, all joy and peace in believing so that, you, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound, another all-encompassing word, abound in hope. It's a great prayer. What I'm going to pray for you, Paul is saying, and I want to say this is what we should pray for each other. I'm going to pray for you that the God of hope would give you an amazing hope. And it comes because you're a believer, he even says, in believing. And this amazing hope that you have from believing, obviously believing Jesus, believing gospel, notice there that it would fill you with all joy and peace. How about if you believe the gospel and you understand that you've been received by Jesus, that you would be filled with this amazing joy of knowing what it means to be received by Jesus, that you would have this amazing, amazing peace about you because you know what it means to have, to, to have been received by Jesus. Not only that, he even includes the Holy Spirit, calling upon the Spirit. By the power of the Spirit, you may abound in hope. That's his prayer. Why would he pray that? That you would have all these things so that the conflict issue isn't an issue. Not that there isn't real conflict. Not that there aren't real conflicts. There are real conflicts. There are real issues in the church. But this idea, the prayer here, it would seem to me in the context that you would have this Holy Spirit-induced understanding of the gospel for all that it really is to think that you were received by Jesus and, and, and you are so overwhelmed by joy and by peace, by the power of the Spirit, that the other stuff just isn't that important that you can see someone else and accept them even though they don't deserve it. Because you know what it means to be accepted in the beloved. So overwhelmed by the gospel that the other issues, even though they're real issues sometimes, aren't lasting issues. That's how we want to be. I know I've been mentioning this a lot lately. I think I'll mention it one more time. God was infinitely wise. God the Son, when He gave us the Lord's Supper and said, do this in remembrance of me until I come again. Because we forget. We assume. We deny the gospel over and over and over again, even in the way we treat each other. We say, we believe God saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're monergists. We don't believe in synergism. We don't believe that somehow we do our part and God does His part. No, God and God alone saves. We're not Arminians. We're not Pelagians. We're not even semi-Pelagians. Theologically, that's all true. It's all good. It's all right. All you're saying is you believe Romans, right? And yet sometimes we forget that if all that's really true, practical implication, Romans 15, verse 7, 
Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We'll see if you're really a monergist. How many times do I need to repeat this verse before you have it memorized? Let's see how I do for memory. Didn't try to memorize it. Therefore, as you have been received, therefore receive one another as Christ has received you for the glory of God or welcome, right? Now I've probably read it, I don't know, 50 times in the last week, so I got a head start. Therefore, as Christ has welcomed you, no, that's not it. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Therefore, receive one another as Christ has received you for the glory of God. You getting it yet? Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I keep using the two synonyms. If you really believe the gospel, you'll get along with that person who's sitting behind you or in front of you or next to you, even when they do the wrong thing. That's the point of all of this. May it be so. Father, thank you for our time together. It is rich. It is great. It's great to be part of a family because we have all of the issues and all of the challenges that families have and maybe even then some because we're a large family. But we are exceedingly grateful for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he received us, that we are permanently received, that he will never deny us, he will never forsake us, based upon what he's done. And now help us to receive others and to embrace them and to welcome them, not based upon what they do, but based upon who they are in Christ and who we are in Christ. And Lord, help us therefore to be able to be freed up from all of this distraction so that we might be able to do significant ministry in Omaha, Nebraska, as well as to the ends of the earth. Thank you for your grace, your patience, and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.